there's still, I think, some shoes to potentially drop where, you know, whether it's CERB or some of the rent relief, you know, programs, they've now ended. So we'll watch very closely what's happening. And, you know, the one thing that I think we've all learned is that the Bank of Canada will take very prudent steps to manage the interest rate, you know, policy for the country. And we'll just continue to watch it very, very closely. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I remember back in 2008, the rates were creeping up. Like I had a fixed rate mortgage at the time. I remember think 5.79. And then 2008 hits the whole subprime crisis in the US and then the rates start to go back down. I'm like, what? I've never gotten a fixed rate since. I'm like, I'm going very well the way, baby. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Today's show of Ed Cardhouse. He's the Home Trust Executive Vice President of Residential Credit Cards and Marketing. It's kind of like three or four different titles or roles that he has. And one of the most well-respected guys in the mortgage space. He's got an incredible understanding of technology and just the lending side of things. Absolutely love chatting with Ed couple takeaways from my conversation with him. First, he talks about how when he first came to Home Trust, how he made a decision to cut off brokers, so like literally reduce the number of people they're working with and how that turned out. He shares how the alt space is continuing to grow, why he thinks it's continuing to expand and will continue to expand. And then finally, I asked him about his predictions for rates and housing. He's an absolute wealth of knowledge. I enjoy chatting with people like this. He was here when all the foundation and the groundwork was laid for the tech and stuff that we have today, and he knows a ton. So fantastic conversation. You're going to check that out. Also, on the Ask the Expert segment, I talked to Reuven from Dita.ca, and we talk about decentralized finance. So that's a really fun conversation. And a huge shout out to our title sponsor, so Finmo. They help make these shows possible. So thank you, guys. They have a mortgage application document collection and submission platform that is specifically built for Canadian mortgage brokers and it is easy to use. We have it at our brokerage. Our brokerage is designed with a training academy built to it and we use Finmo because it's just quick to pick up. It's fast, it's easy, it's got smart docs so it makes it easy for agents to know what to ask for. It's got smart submission notes, it has lender underwriting guidelines built in so it really makes it very simple for a new agent to get up and running. Check those guys out and thanks again for checking out this episode. Hey, Ed, welcome to the show. Hey, Scott, good to be here. How are you? I'm fantastic. We had to turn the recorder on because we're having such a great conversation. Like, I can't just hog my conversation with you. I've actually got to share this with folks. So before we get into that, though, tell me a little bit about yourself and how'd you get into your current role at Home Trust? Well, great question. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a banker or a broker by trade. I've been building technical solutions for Canadian lenders and financial services firms for over 30 years. And to get to Home Trust, I was working with Yusri Basada. I was a partner of his at Phylogix. And so we knew each other very well. And we had a great run there and sold that company. And, you know, when he became the CEO at Home Trust, he wanted somebody that he knew working with him. And I got a phone call and here I am. So. Right. Awesome. And so we had an interesting conversation with sort of the backstory of tech in the mortgage space, which maybe we, we could chat about another time. But so being that, you know, Home Trust is the biggest alt lender to broker channel. Did you kind of expect that, you know, brokers would adopt the alternative channel as well as much as they have? Or what surprised you the most about, you know, the whole alternate space with brokers? 
Well, I mean, the alternative space has been, you know, around for a long time, you know, back earlier in my career in the early 2000s, it was always referred to as B lending. And, you know, today B lending is really more what I would call like private lending and alt lending is really near prime lending. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all that this has become a big business in Canada. And frankly, it's a great opportunity to provide, you know, mortgage solutions to Canadians that, you know, don't fit the typical profile of a Schedule A prime lender. Right. And in terms of growth in that space, what have you seen over the last sort of, you know, five to 10 years in terms of the alternative space? Well, certainly more entrance in terms of, you know, lenders. I mean, some lenders have come, some have gone, but, you know, what we have seen is the alternative space continue to grow. And I suspect strongly that that will just continue because what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, the baby boomers that have been out there were more prone to be traditional, you know, jobs, verifiable income type roles with job letter pay stub. And, you know, the new entrants into the Canadian mortgage marketplace, millennials, Gen Zers, so on and so forth, are much more prone to be self-employed entrepreneurs and that sort of thing. And so this is just a market segment that's going to continue to grow across the country as you see boomers move out of the mortgage market and these new entrants, whether they be, you know, millennials, Gen Zers, you know, immigrants to Canada, that sort of thing hit the market. So the alt space to me, seems to have grown in the Canadian market. And do you think it's increased regulation, less traditional employment, immigration of the three, which do you think has had the biggest impact? Or you think that they're all fairly equally weighted? Well, I think they're all equally weighted because they all touch, you know, sort of a different segment of the market. And sometimes they cover more than one segment, but they've all had, you know, definitive impact on the alternative space for sure. Right. I think that the uneducated person would assume that it would just be regulation that caused the alt space to grow, right? Like it always annoys me when I see articles shadow lending as if somebody's lending and they're painting this brush of what are your thoughts on that? I mean, listen, there's lots of lenders in this country that are not regulated, right? I mean, right. you know, as an OSFI regulated lender, we have to lend in accordance with the rules that OSFI puts out. And, you know, whether it be income verification, you know, docs, those sorts of things, there's a lot of things that we have to do that unregulated lenders, you know, may not have to do or choose not to do. So it does sometimes cause confusion out in the broker market. And sometimes the path of least resistance is something that people look for. And that's not just, by the way, with brokers. I mean, oftentimes you see borrowers that just aren't interested in spending the time to come up with the documents or collect their bank statements or something of that order, you know, in order to satisfy a mortgage condition. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So you guys are the largest alternative lender in the space by a long shot. So what do you think's helped you guys succeed? Because there's been other companies that have come in, like you said, and gone. I know some of them that, you know, I have little things on my desk from some of them from years ago. So why do you guys think you've been able to be successful? Well, you know, I think for us, we've always believed since the day I got to Home Trust that providing top-notch service, you know, to brokers was the most important thing to being a successful lender. And we anchored everything that we do about a service-oriented culture. And in order to be service-oriented, there's a lot of things that we had to do in order to deliver service. And, you know, part of that was trying to focus on brokers that actually understood the alternative space, right? So when I first got here, one of the decisions that I made was to reduce the total number of brokers we were working with 
so that we could become more efficient to provide greater levels of service. It's a much different experience working with a broker who understands the alternative market and what's required to satisfy a lending you know, commitment versus someone who doesn't. So you know, we reduced the number of brokers significantly, but our service levels went up dramatically and it's allowed us to scale our operation very effectively. Right. So you had to basically, kind of like how Steve Jobs, when he went into Apple for the second time and dropped like 95% of their products because they wanted to do a few things well. So you basically got really focused on your ideal broker and said, chop. So was there a percent or is there like any idea of like, was there any pushback? I mean, you come in and you're like, hey, I got an idea, guys. We're going to chop a whole bunch of brokers and we're going to do more better business. They must have thought a little bit like, are you whacked? Well, I'll never forget the day when I walked into the boardroom and I said, I want to reduce our broker, you know, headcount by 50%. And I had a lot of people say, you want to do what? And, you know, I said, you have to trust me on this. If we focus on a smaller group of brokers that are more efficient, it'll allow us to do a much better job at providing great service, but more importantly, it'll allow us to scale our business more effectively. So we actually built into all of our agreements with our brokers and our broker partners efficiency because efficiency to me is the key to success. It allows you to drive great service, but it also allows you to scale and meet, you know, the demands of the broker marketplace in a much better way. Of course, we had some pushback, you know, people said, you know, hey, I send you one deal a year, I want to continue with you. But, you know, the challenge again comes down to efficiency. And of course, there is a volume component to that as well. So we basically said, listen, you have to have this level of efficiency and this level of business, and we're more than happy to work with you. And, you know, we do a really good job at onboarding new brokers. And, you know, we're always willing to take a look at adding brokers back that, you know, used to be with us, but we want to make sure that we can train them to understand how we do business and how they can help us be efficient and help us deliver great service back to them. Right. So, okay, this is a out of the left field question, but how do you think, I like the city of focusing on efficiency to increase success. And how do you think brokers can do that better? Well, I mean, you know, again, it just comes down to a time and motion study. A lot of times people have used this expression of look to book. You know, if I submit you, you know, 10 deals and I fund eight of them, you know, I've got, a, you know, an 80% effective rate, but that's really not a great way of looking at it because if of those eight deals that got funded, there was 160 touch points where there was, you know, you had to go back mm, and yeah, forth. One, document, one thing back and forth 50,000 times. Yeah. Yeah. So right. like okay. having brokers that understand a, what documents we're going to need sending us packages that are as close to being broker complete on submission, it just allows us to do our job much, much more effectively. And one of the things that we pride ourselves at home is we wanted to go to the marketplace and say, if we commit on the deal, we're going to fund that deal. You know, we didn't want to rush to commit and then back out of the deal when we got, you know, further into the underwriting process. So virtually on every commitment, we've gone through a full underwriting review and, you know, the conditions are just to do the checkbox to make sure that, you know, everything that we believe is coming is coming. And then we typically will fund all the time. So we have a very, very, very low percentage of deals where when we get through to the end of the process where we don't follow through on it, like exceptionally low. So brokers that help us get as much upfront with the least amount of touch points is our ideal, you know, relationship. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So any plans you have for to increase, you know, your guys penetration in the broker space? 
Yeah, we actually do. And we're looking forward to make a couple of announcements. So it's a little bit early, but I will say this, you know, brokers across the country will see us expanding our lending areas. We're looking at some of our lending guidelines on how that will help, you know, brokers. We will be expanding our product offerings. So stay tuned on that. We're making additional features, adding additional features to our loft broker portal, which we think is going to be, you know, helpful to the brokers overall. And we continue to build out our team and add bodies to our organization and quality individuals that are going to help us continue to scale. Right. That's awesome. Okay. So I'd love to ask some questions now about interest rates and real estate. So obviously nobody can predict what will happen with, you know, interest rates in the next 12 months, but guys in your position, you've got like a view that other people don't have. And I know you watch certain things. So what do you look for? What's the dash light that you start blinking that makes you pay attention to interest rates? You know, interest rates has almost been the subject of the day for the last, you know, month and a half, right? You know, every time I see an article come out in the morning, it's interest rates, interest rates. You know, if you go back to 1981 as an example, 40 years ago, the posted rate back in 81 was 19.2%, right? The variable rate at the time was 18.13%. So, you know, we've come a long way, right? So if you looked at where interest rates were going, when the SARS epidemic hit Canada back in April of 2003, we started to see a lowering of interest rates that slowly dropped. But then, you know, we saw 2008 come the financial crisis, right? And the rates have been almost consistent, give or take a point or two, point and a half, since 2008. There's been very little movement on interest rates. What's actually happening now is, you know, we're seeing the cost of funds, the cost of money go up. And so some of the rate increases that have been taking place most recently is just due to the cost of funds. You know, there's a lot of speculation in the marketplace that the Bank of Canada is going to raise interest rates up to four times next year. You know, a lot of economists have suggested that they're signaling that, you know, we're going to continue to watch what's happening in the Canadian marketplace from an economic recovery perspective. We're going to see what's happening with the fallout of the pandemic. I mean, there's still, I think, some shoes to potentially drop where, you know, whether it's CERB or some of the rent relief, you know, programs, they've now ended. So we'll watch very closely what's happening. And, you know, the one thing that I think we've all learned is that the Bank of Canada will take very prudent steps to manage the interest rate, you know, policy for the country. And we'll just continue to watch it very, very closely. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I remember back in 2008, the rates were creeping up. Like I had a fixed rate mortgage at the time. I remember think 5.79. And then 2008 hits the whole subprime crisis in the US and then the rates start to go back down. I'm like, what? I've never gotten a fixed rate since. I'm like, I'm going very well the way, baby, since that time, because there was a significant cost for me to do anything with that mortgage. But okay, so what about house prices? So same thing, nobody can predict house prices, but what things do you look for? Or what are the indicators that you watch? Given that, you know, you have a large company, you've got to pay attention to this, you've got a large book of mortgages out there. What things are you looking for that you look at? Well, I think the big thing right now across the country is supply, right, you know, versus demand. And where does that ratio, you know, fit? You know, we're seeing across the country some normalization of sales, you know, figures across the country. But sales volumes remain, you know, very strong. Demand is high. There's still low supply. We're starting to see the condo market, you know, come back in a pretty significant way. And there are indications of what I would call stabilization, if you would, you know, in terms of house prices. But we're still seeing increases, you know, taking place. 
you know, that's one thing. I think the second thing is we're seeing some really interesting activity in the market, particularly on higher priced homes. And, you know, last year in 2020, there was only, you know, roughly about 3,600 homes, I think 3,650 homes, over 2 million that sold in the country. This year, there's been over 6,600 homes over $2 million that have sold. So there's been, you know, some really interesting things that, you know, we've observed in 2021. You know, what are we watching? Again, you know, things such as where is the economy going? Um, what's the recovery going to be like? Does the vaccinations, you know, prove to be, you know, highly effective? And can we get back, you know, to normal? And what will be the impact of what I call this work from home hybrid model versus in the office full time? There's no one, you know, silver bullet. There's a combination of many things. And we're just have to continue to watch it very closely. Right. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of factors that affect it. But okay. So give you a magic wand, like Ed, you now have the power to change one rule or regulation that would help the average Canadian. So I'm not talking, maybe it helps brokers, but what would that be? Can I give you three? Sure. But hey, it's your so, one. I guess sorry, I, okay. couldn't get it, I couldn't get it in your hand fast enough. You're like, one, bing, bing, okay. bing. So you got all three of them done. Okay. The cap on the amount for mortgage insurance, increasing that over a million dollars would be one thing for sure. You know, potentially either a cap or a slight reduction in the mortgage insurance premiums would be a second. And I think the third one, which is what I call the, uh, you know, really something that often is a shocker is making sure that on purchases that one of the conditions of a purchase is that the buyer actually has financing lines lined up and, you know, can be executed against because that's one of the most challenging things I find when you get a phone call from somebody that's gone in firm on an offer and they can't get their financing. It's always one of the toughest phone calls to get. And I think it would be in the best interest of Canadian homeowners that are buying homes to have that in place. You probably know this, but in Arizona, they have what's called a proof of funds letter that you have to provide with your offer. So it's got to be done. You've got to be able to show that you can get that mortgage. It'd be interesting what something like that could do to the Canadian housing market. Well, it's similar. They basically do that up in Quebec, right? So, I mean, I think that this is something that it would just be great to see. And of course, that, you know, might be controversial in the eyes of different industries. But I think for Canadian homeowners, alleviating that shock that they've gone in firm on a home and then finding out they can't get financing is something that's just really important. Most people have great intentions, but sometimes for one reason or another, they don't work out. Right. And they get emotional, you know, all the other things that fall after that. Okay. So I'm sure you saw the BMO study on the broker channel and it seems like it's growing. The broker channel is growing, which despite all competition and everything that's going on, why do you think that is? Why is the broker channel growing? I mean, I was interviewed for that study. I mean, I think that I really would boil it down to the value add that a mortgage broker brings to a prospective homeowner. You know, the simple reality is, is that in my mind, I think brokers will continue to increase their market share. There's an increasing need for advice in selecting a mortgage due to, you know, product complexity, repeat business, referrals, this whole new population of first-time homebuyers, a much better quality of service compared to captive bank, you know, mortgage specialists, right, that can only offer one product and one solution. Mortgage brokers have such an incredible opportunity now more than ever, particularly with this changing demographic of the borrower profile to these new millennials, you know, and Gen Zers and that sort of thing. You know how in the US, there's a lot of like, almost like street capital would have its own sales force, loan officers work for a lender. I'm curious why that hasn't been adopted in Canada, because it seems like it's pretty common 
in practice in the U.S. for that loan officers would work for this bank or this small lender. And, you know, they may do some correspondent lending outside of that. But like, I'm curious why we haven't seen with their own people. Well, I think the distribution channel is what's key. And think of the mortgage broker as a man or a woman that can provide great advice and can cut through all the complexity of options that are out there in the marketplace. And there is no such thing as a one size fits all. And so when you go to market, if you're the only solution that you're representing is your own, it's going to be very costly to go out and build a network coast to coast to allow you to do the same thing you can do with brokers. So, you know, the relationship that we have is one where we partner with mortgage brokers coast to coast that can represent us in front of, you know, home buyers and people that are looking for mortgages and represent our interests and our diversified products to best meet the needs of that individual. To us, it's just a much better way of going to market than us having our own mobile specialist sales force. Right. You know what you just made me think of? It's geography. Like they can be a regional bank that's just in one state or one part of a state and there's a large population base. They can build a great business. Whereas in Canada, the footprint is bigger. And so that means the infrastructure costs. You got regional differences in lending. You know, you're like, hey, we wouldn't even touch that. And so it's probably that makes it more difficult to go direct unless you're massive like a bank. What do you think about that? There's no question that that is a big, big part of it. The other part of it is that it depends upon what your funding models are like. Like we're a balance sheet lender, so we keep the mortgages on our book. Other lenders are lenders that originate and then sell their mortgages. And again, you know, geography is a really key part of it, but it's also about what is the appetite of the lender and the investor to acquire product. And, you know, sometimes you got to step outside of just one geographic area. In our case, we're a national lender. We want to take risk in areas that we believe make sense for us and where we can be competitive. And that's the choice we've made. And we're partnering with brokers to do that. Right. Okay. Makes sense. I'm just interested that often, you know, models that work in the U.S. come to Canada, but not always. But so this would be one that I see is very prevalent in the U.S., but not as prevalent here. So, okay, so last question for you. What's one final piece of advice or words of wisdom you have to share with the broker community? I would just say this, is that this is a partnership more than anything else. And in order to make this partnership thrive, we got to make it win-win. So to that end, allowing lenders to provide you great service, it's incumbent that you help us do that by providing us quality applications that are complete upon submission, you know, tell us the story, the real story the first time so that we don't have to go chase the story. If you make us do less work, we're just gonna be able to provide better service back and everybody will win. So, you know, stories matter. As I always say, if there's been a challenge in a person's past, tell us what the cause was and tell us what the cure is. And, you know, if we have a complete story, detailed notes, we can really make good things happen quickly. And I think at the end of the day, it's all about service and great delivery. And that would be my advice. Right. That's really good. Ed, I always love chatting with you. I always learn a ton. Keep crushing it over there at Home Trust. And yeah, well, I'm sure I'll have you back on the show again at some point. I'd love to do it. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Scott. Hey, Reuven, welcome back to Ask the Experts. 
Hey, Scott, thanks for having me. Great to be I here. I got to tell you, I'm pretty excited about this conversation today because we were chatting before. We couldn't even get the recording going because we're so excited to chat. So we're talking about NFTs and blockchain. And so I'm just going to give you my basic understanding that you've got more understanding than me. So I think of an NFT is basically digital proof of ownership. So if I said to you, how do you know you own your house? You say, well, I just do. But, but how do you really know? You'd have to go to the land registry office and in a computer somewhere in a database, it would say this house is owned by Scott Peckford or Ruben. And with NFTs, you can basically show digital proof of ownership. This is the thing that's interesting to me. And you combine that with smart contracts, which are crazy powerful and the radical transparency. I can see, to me anyway, somebody selling a picture for whatever is not interesting as NFTs. What's interesting to right. me is how do we digitize physical things so that we know who owns them and we can transfer ownership, partial ownership, full ownership. That's the part that's blows my mind and goes, this is going to be game-changing technology. And we're just on the cusp of it. So give me your sort of your take on this and how this ties into DeFi, decentralized finance and stuff. Yeah, for sure. So at the end of the day, blockchain technology that was initially limited to crypto, right? And I think most of us are aware of what crypto is or crypto trading. It's now finding its way into other financial ecosystems and they're starting to affect what we know is institutions like banks, mortgage lenders, insurance company, and all of that is happening courtesy to this fairly recent invention called decentralized finance, or some people might call it DeFi for short. Okay. So tell me about where are some of the areas you feel like this is going to be disruptive, I guess, or where do you think the first inroads will be made with this? So the first thing is really, you know, to maybe define what decentralized finance or DeFi means. So Today, when I need to borrow money, we typically go to a centralized entity, and that entity can be a lender, my bank, my broker, et cetera. And typically, those entities are either monopolies, oligopolies, or government institutions, right? And they have little to no competition, which means they would have the final say to the terms of whether or not I get the money, right? And they set the rules. Let's take an example, Scott. If I want to buy a new car or get a business loan, for example, you know, you're going to take a business loan for your coaching business. Today, we have two parties. A really big loan, a huge <laughs> loan you're going to need. It's going to be huge. <laughs> exactly. Just so, kidding, so, it's not. So today, in a transaction, we have two parties. One, let's say yourself, who'd like to borrow, and likely a central intermediary, such as a bank, who's going to lend you based on certain criteria. And those institutions will usually have the money to lend by way of, obviously, collecting deposits, and most of which will require some sort of collateral. Decentralized finance, the gist of it is it's a blockchain-based form of finance that does not rely on a central financial intermediary, such as an exchange or a bank, and can offer traditional financial instruments using those smart contracts on blockchain. Right. Okay. So can you boil it down to an example for me? So you need to borrow 500K for your business. In a centralized finance world, you're going to go to a banker, you're going to show them your documents, they're going to qualify your income, your credit, they likely need some sort of collateral. So maybe you're going to put up your house as collateral if you default on that loan. Now, let's fast forward to a DeFi world. In a DeFi world, Scott, you have, let's say, 10 Bitcoins. And you know if you've been following the prices, that's about 700 grand nowadays. So now you'd use that Bitcoin as collateral on one of these DeFi platforms. You're putting up those Bitcoins up as collateral. And literally within a couple of clicks, you can get your money from any individuals or companies on that platform. So you would instantly get that cash. And the reason it can happen so fast and without having the typical steps of, you know, the credit check, the income verification and all that is because if you default 
All those rules are written in what's called a digital smart contract. So say you're not going to make payment or you're going to default on the loan. Those parties that are lending you the cash will have your crypto as collateral and it's easily liquidated. Right. Interesting. Maybe just see if I understand this. So instead of the proof of ownership of my stocks being in the bank computer, the proof of ownership of my house being in the land titles office, when somebody owns this crypto that's in a blockchain, it's actually stored on multiple computers, right, across the world. And so even if somebody hacked into one and tried to mess with it, it's going to be like, hey, this one out of the 50 others is not right. It provides a level of security because somebody would have to be able to do it to all of them. Is that correct? Or am I okay? Yeah, yeah. or it's called immutability. So, you know, when a record exists in more than one place and exists in multiple places, it's nearly impossible to manipulate and it definitely you can't, you can't change all the records in all the locations and therefore exactly. it makes it very difficult for those kind of games. So then smart contracts are tied to specific things. Like what kind of things do people put into smart contracts? A smart contract, if you think about it, it's a program. It's stored on the blockchain. So again, you know, just as we discussed, you can't really manipulate it. And all it is, is it sets off a bunch of conditions and terms whenever predetermined conditions are met. So just to maybe boil it down to an example, Today, Scott, you and I signed a loan agreement. You're lending me a bunch of money. I default. So what happens today is you got to go to court. You got to get judgment against me. You got to collect that money. You're going to spend a lot of money doing that. You're going to spend a lot of time trying to recover your principal plus interest penalties and so on. And even if you win in court, you have to enforce that judgment to collect your money. Smart contract automates all of that. So the minute that I default on a loan, if it's written in the smart contract that, hey, I've got five days to pay out the loan. There's a certain outcome. It automatically triggers. And again, if you've got collateral like crypto that's staked in the background, the smart contract- So could they, okay, so let's say if I have my 10 Bitcoins, could I not sell them? Or would that smart contract like lock me in? Kind of like how it's called hypothecated in typical lending. So would that be hypothecated then? Like I couldn't just go sell them to somebody else and say, ah, too bad. Like, is that possible or how that Exactly. There's a bit of a different term for it called staking. So I would- you know, put a certain amount of my crypto as, you know, I would stake it out. And so I can't actually move it while it's tied into that smart contract. I wouldn't be able to just click and sell it to someone else to like, exactly to to take the loan and sell my crypto. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So how is this going to translate into real estate though? So like, this is super cool, but like, how do you see this moving into real estate? One of the core issues with real estate today is despite the fact that we have a super hot market, A home at the end of the day is not a liquid asset. Yes, you can sell it, you can turn it into cash, but we all know it's not something you can do with just a snap of the fingers. There's heavy transactional costs of doing that. Now, when it gets interesting is when tokenizing real estate becomes commonplace. And by tokenizing, think of tokenizing as instead of buying a whole house, which is obviously very expensive, people can buy shares in a house or tokens that You can have fractional ownership. You can own all the tokens in a particular property. You know, this isn't anything new. Real estate's been tokenized and been fractional for years. And, you know, people have made great strides and great money. But imagine where you're tokenizing a property and much like investing like a stock, like Amazon or Uber, anybody can invest in your house almost as a stock. So you can buy and sell shares. And effectively what that does is make your property very liquid. If you need all the money, if you need a portion of the money, you can trade shares in that property in minutes or a couple of clicks. Right. Can you tokenize a corporation, say a company? So could somebody tokenize their business so that you could then raise money through the selling of those tokens? Is that possible? 
Yeah, absolutely. The world's going to go bonkers. I can imagine that the current structure that we have in place, the legal system is not going to know what to do with this stuff. They're going to be like, what, like, where does this fall? Because it's totally outside of what we typically, how a lot of things operate. But so you could tokenize a business potentially, and then use that as a mechanism for fundraising, let's say. Yeah. And theoretically, businesses are already tokenized in the form that we call shares. So, you know, right. So it really, yeah, that's exactly. So to understand it, the difference is now, though, it's like it's click, boom, and accessibility is so much quicker. I have a question about gas fees and stuff, which we'll talk about in a bit. But okay, so you could see real estate being tokenized. And have you heard of that happening? I thought I've read about something somewhere it was done, but somebody had tokenized an apartment building. Have you heard about this? Yeah, yeah. So tokenization has been around for probably about a decade or so. And there's a number of really great companies that have been, you know, essentially selling fractional real estate by way of tokenizing them. Obviously not mainstream yet for your, you know, commonplace residential property. But you can see that happening fairly quickly with, again, appreciating property prices, being able to get your hands on liquidity. So, you know, maybe another example is, you know, if you think about today's world, let's say I want to go to the dealership, spend $50,000, buy a car. And obviously with the attractive rates on HELOCs right now, I want to maybe, you know, leverage some of my home equity to get that $50,000 towards the car. But we all know the process you have to go through. I have to provide proof of income, go through the process, register a new mortgage, withdraw the funds only to then go to the dealership, drop the money, drive off the lot. Well, if my property is tokenized, then theoretically I could literally walk into that dealership negotiate the price of my car might be the equivalent of 0.5 tokens of my property click a couple buttons and drive right off the lot without having to go through the entire process of accessing my home equity right crazy okay let's walk through this so let's say i'm the car dealer you take the car off the lot and you tokenize a piece of your property and then crash the car so then how do i get my money out of that property how do i regain my 50 grand that's tied into your house it's very similar, you know, if you compare it to the parallel with the current system as you have collateral. You have oh, I guess you, you know what, you'd probably end up just eating off some of the equity of their home. And so because it's tokenized, they would actually, if they tried to sell it, they pre-sold $50,000 of their house. So it's essentially $50,000 have been carved off the home before it's gone already, essentially. Yeah. So mechanically, it's no different than what we're doing today, but you don't have to go through that entire process of, you know, going through an approval, putting up collateral just to get, you know, cash in your hands through, you know, your common refinance, you know, once your real estate assets become completely tokenized and essentially, you know, more liquid, then theoretically you can walk into a convenience store, pick up a bottle of pop for $2 and pay for it through home equity as well. Right. Point zero 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 whatever. Here, I bought this with my house. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So this is all super cool and stuff, but like, when do you think this will become more common? It's already underway. I mean, there's a lot of momentum. A lot of it is really fueled by a big push and a general distrust in large organizations and governments. I think those are, you know, really the big mega trends. And if we look at, you know, where the world's gone in the last couple of years, there's a lot of wind and no sales. Obviously, hard to say exactly, you know, when it'll be mainstream, but we're seeing a lot of great signals. I mean, Bitcoin hitting 70,000, Ethereum is on fire, NFTs are becoming, you know, more commonplace. So it really is just a matter of time before the real estate liquidity problem is really starting to get addressed by tokenizing more properties. And then the use cases are virtually unlimited. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think that this is something to definitely pay attention to. So let's keep our eye on this. This has been a fun conversation. And 
you know, I'd love to see Deeded be the company to do the first one of these transactions, which would be awesome. So if you're listening to this, I can tell you right now under the current system with all of its, you know, intricacies and complexities, if you want an amazing experience from the lawyer side of it and lots of communication, one of my agents calls it the Uber Eats of real estate law firms. I sent that clip to you. Reuven. And so check out Dita.ca. They have a fantastic process for making it easy for your clients. It's very transparent and you know what's happening at all times. Like honestly, I don't know why everybody isn't using this. So check out Dita.ca. Reuven, it's been great chatting with you, brother. Thanks again, Scott. Great to be here as always. Hey, before you go, if you want to find out how we can help you scale your mortgage business, we've got two options for you. One, if you're a new agent, you want to check out our get10funded.com. We have an entire curriculum and game plan, 100-day challenge that we put our new agents through. We're literally every day, it's mapped out specifically, hey, today do this and this and this. And the whole goal is to help you get your first 10 files going. And if you're more experienced, you know, you're doing 100K plus a year and you're like, I'm working too hard you know, I don't have any time, then go to our 10 loans a month Academy where we can show you, we've got some amazing coaches there that will help you completely retool your business. So you can check that out at 10 loans a month.com. And thanks again for checking out this episode. This is an, I love mortgage brokering production.